0: Today, we are talking with Brian Adams, founder and president of Excelsior Capital, and I'm really excited to be diving into this one. We're going to be talking about passive cash flow investing and how you can do that as a commercial real estate investor without actually having to operate your own deals. Brian, I know that that was a very brief intro. You've been in private equity for over 10 years, uh, and you also did a little stint as a, an attorney before that. So can you give us a little bit of your background? Yeah, and thanks so much for having me. This is going to be fun. Um
1: so yeah, I'm a recovering attorney. So I am a New York guy who married a Nashville girl, much like yourself, kind of a rare breed, native Nashvilleian. Uh, so um, from New York, originally met my wife in college. Um, and she would not go out with me for about three and a half years, but finally did. Uh, when we were seniors. We uh, did the Northeast thing for a little bit. So lived in DC. We both went to graduate school in Boston. That's where I went to law school and moved here 15 years ago. Uh, so it's been a long time now. Um, I yeah. practiced law for a couple of years uh, here in Nashville and then started my company 10 years ago now.
0: So what made you make the move from law to investing in real estate?
1: It was a couple of different things. Um, one, so my legal career was was fairly short and I worked at the district attorney's office here in Nashville, Davidson County on the vehicular trial team. So I was prosecuting cases, anything from an open container, um, which is legal in Tennessee under certain circumstances, um, (laughs) all the way to a vehicular manslaughter. Um, During that time, I had my first child and being a DA is a great job, but it doesn't pay a lot of money and you're dealing with this huge bureaucratic machine. Kind of gig that you do for five years or 50 years. And I knew I didn't want to be a lifer. So I started having coffee with a lot of um, older partners at prestigious law firms in town and um, kind of doing informational interviews, understanding what they did, and then trying to, you know, obviously get a job there. And pretty uniformly, they were uh, sad, angry, burned out. Um, They didn't really enjoy their job. They didn't have a great family life. And they had this golden handcuffs issue where, they were making just enough money to live the you know, style of life that was expected of them as a partner, but it was never enough to truly break free or have some kind of financial flexibility or freedom. And, and frankly, the law firm business model is one where the value you're making for the enterprise is directly correlated to how much time you spend away from your family, not on kind of the, the quality of the product you're creating necessarily. And I just didn't want to be a part of that. Um, that dovetailed with, I was very fortunate to, um, have married my wife for a lot of reasons. Uh, One of them is that her family has a single family office here, which got me exposure to all kinds of private equity opportunities within venture capital and commercial real estate specifically. And I just became really enamored with being an entrepreneur. I love the real estate business, um, so it's really those, those two things that, that motivated me to finally go from real estate being a side hustle to being a full-time job and
0: yeah, that's really fascinating I mean you know law is a perfect example of trading time for dollars and that's that's one of those you know pure examples of why people get into real estate investing is to get rid of that and create that passive income. So that's, that's fascinating that you that you got exposed to the single-family office. I mean, can you explain what a single-family office is and what it does?
1: Yeah, sure. So a family office has become kind of one of these terms that gets thrown around a lot, and I think it's really misunderstood. Um, conceptually, what it is is a, a corpus of assets, so a, a bucket of capital, that is meant to maintain a quality of life, and a cost of living across multiple generational time horizons and avoid paying taxes. Now, there are, in my opinion, minimums where it makes sense in terms of the AUM, you have to have a family office, but it's really less about the money and the amount of money. And it's more about the mindset because there are plenty of ultra high net worth individuals and high net worth families if they have an operating company or not, that simply don't have that mindset. Right. I want my children to learn the hard way and to bootstrap their lives. And I don't want to provide them with, um, you know, uh, a distribution or a dividend or I want my last paycheck to bounce or I want to give away all my money in my lifetime. So it, there's no judgment associated with it, but it is a culture and a mindset more than it is a dollar figure. A better way, maybe, to understand it, if you're, if that's confusing to you, is it's basically a private wealth management firm, meant to run the money of all the lineal descendants of a patriarch or matriarch.
0: So I know that that single-family offices can be run, you know, internally by the family, or they can actually hire a a third-party manager. I mean, what do you what do you typically see? Um, I mean, if if you're comfortable sharing, you know, what your wife's family's is. Um, and then you know, it's what you typically see in the market when you're dealing with these single family offices.
1: Yeah, there's there's an adage in the family office world that once you meet one family office, you've met one family office. And the <laughs> way I describe it is fam family offices are just like families. They're crazy, they're unpredictable, they are schizophrenic, they have the same problems you do. They just happen to have more zeros in the bank account. Yep. So It's very difficult to generalize and everyone's going to be a a little bit different. To your point, there is a model where you have an internal organization. So you have a chief investment officer, a controller, a CFO. It it can be huge. I I know some family offices that have 100 plus employees. There's also a model where you third party outsource a lot of those functionalities as well. And in our family, our culture is that everybody works. So everybody has a day job. Um, we use the corpus and the partnership as a way to be either of service. So we have a lot of folks that are you know, teachers or work in healthcare um, or are somehow or other helping their communities. And it also allows you to be entrepreneurial, right? So it's that cushion, it's that safety net, it is that startup capital to help you be a wealth creator for your own generation. Uh so in our family culture it's very much we keep a super low overhead and we we have an internal controller we have an outsourced chief investment officer that helps us make some major decisions um but for the most part we don't have staff we you know try to do as much as we can ourselves and then we have different managers that we outsource for either you know liquid portfolio or um private offerings
0: I would imagine, I mean, I don't have too much experience in the, in the single family office world, uh, but I would imagine that that's a pretty healthy approach for the family because they say, you know, the first generation makes it, second generation maintains it, and the third generation loses it. But that's usually because, you know, there's so much money by the time the second generation comes around that they don't feel like they need to put the third generation to work. And so, I mean, have you kind of seen that? Like having everybody in the family has to have a job in order to kind of benefit from a a single family office that just keeps it rolling?
1: Yeah, I mean, the phenomenon you're referring to is called shirt sleeves, to shirt sleeves within three generations. Oh, and it, great. Is fairly, it is fairly common. Um, you know, cliches exist for a reason. Um, what I think is more and certainly the fact pattern that you described, right, where first generation works really hard, second generation spends it, third generation has to go back to, to work um, exists, certainly. I think really what it is is fundamentally, it's very challenging. If you think about a family office, as, as I said, as a boutique private wealth management firm, it's a small business, right? So you're dealing with distributions, you're dealing with taxes, you're dealing with income, you've got HR issues, you're trying to allocate capital strategically. And in America, small businesses fail. They're just hard, especially across three generations. And when you take a step back and think, okay, well, this corpus of assets um has to take into account inflation so let's call that three percent a year of inflation which i know inflation has been low but historically two to three percent plus you have your operating expenses which is your your you know overhead which is your lifestyle so do you want to live in a nice part of town do you want to have a nice house do you want to go somewhere in the summer do you want to go somewhere skiing do you want to belong to certain clubs do you want to fly first class or private? Um, so all those things go into account. A good bogey is four to 6% of the corpus goes towards overhead, right? Um, what it costs to maintain that quality of life. Um, and then you have the exponential growth of your family, right? People have a way of creating more people. So if every family has two or three kids, uh, which that might be on the over, on the upper end of the range, but call it you know one to two per sibling you know, it grows pretty quickly and those are a lot of mouths to feed. So I I think part of it is, is that phenomenon you discussed, but also just functionally, if you do the math, you need to be clipping 12 to 15% annualized returns on average to, to solve for that. So you have to be very aggressive with your capital allocation. You got to be really lucky with the investments you're making because, you know, public markets are more like 4%. Fixed income is less than 1% these days. Um, so it's just a very challenging um, bogey to hit.
0: Right. I mean, even if you're going as aggressive as possible and, and doing you know, commercial real estate investments, I mean, you can't keep up 12 to 15% every year. I mean, right now, investors are lucky to be getting 6 to 8% on, on you know, stabilized assets, just considering where the market is. Um, well, that's interesting. I, I wasn't planning on kind of diving into uh, single family offices, but I, I was fascinated that you said that. So, you know, coming back to, to, you know, getting out of law and getting into real estate, have you, have you found that as a, a deal sponsor, having that background as an attorney has been like fairly beneficial for you? I mean, do you do your own paperwork or do you still hire other attorneys? Oh, hell no. <laughs> I didn't think so, but I had to ask. I've retired
1: for license. I do not, not give legal advice. Anything I say in the show should not be considered as legal advice. I for not entertainment
0: purposes only. <laughs>
1: Truly entertainment purposes only. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't care about practice. I've retired my license. Um, you know, frankly, the kind of work I did, um, I think it gave me a lot of credibility with investors and with deals early on in my career where I could say, you know, I, I went to law school, I'm an attorney, et cetera. But um, frankly, I, you know, the minute that we could afford to outsource it to, to people that can focus on it full time, we did so. Uh, I'm lucky enough that my business partner has a, a corporate law background on Wall Street. So he's much more acts as a general counsel uh, than I would. Um, so I think it certainly gave me perspective um, and ex- some experience. But, um, you know, purchase agreements and, and leases, uh, until you get into more complex uh, financings, they're pretty straightforward anyways. So I would do kind of the, the early... Nuts and bolts, but um, the minute that we could kind of put that off my plate, we did.
0: Yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's not the highest and best use of your time, right? I mean, I, I started off as a commercial real estate broker, and while I do oversee a team of brokers now and I get it involved every now and then, my my highest and best use of my time is not going out and finding a thousand square foot tenant. It's let's go find the next deal and place the next investment. So that yeah, that makes sense. I couldn't imagine getting bogged down with all that paperwork while trying to handle a bunch of investors. Yeah. It's, so what?
1: Your point it's just not the highest and best use.
0: Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what? Uh, what kind of assets are you looking to invest in? I mean, what? What was your first project? Let's let's talk about that. Actually, what was your first project?
1: Yeah. So let's rewind the clock. We're looking at 2010, um, Nashville. Good year so, to buy. Should have bought more, <laughs> um, but the Great Recession was, was you know, in full uh, form and my partners and I, um, the first deal we bought was a property on Music Row, 818, 8, 8, 818, 18th Ave South. So 18th at Chet Atkins, Music Row.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah.
1: Um, which now is the WeWork building or no, it's a multifamily property. Uh, it's a big apartment building. I don't know the name of it. Is it
0: the note or something or something like that? Sounds right. I think it was,
1: gosh, I can't remember the name of the developer, but uh, we bought it. Um, it was occupied. It was, you know, a small deal. I can't remember how much it cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, it was cash flowing. We put debt on it. And we did a few minor upgrades, we did some leasing work, but it was a small deal. And um, we bought that. We did a deal in Sylvan Park that did not go well. We bought about two acres in Germantown, which was a home run. And um, then we bought a property up in Louisville. Um, Those were kind of successively the first few deals that we
0: did. It's pretty wild to see how far Nashville's come. I mean, thinking about a couple hundred thousand dollars on Music Row, I mean, you couldn't get a lot for probably less than a million now, uh, or or at least close to it. I mean, most of the most of the properties that we've been trading over there are over one and a half um, on the on the office, typically owner occupied side. Let's let's unpack uh, that failure. I mean, what what happened with that site?
1: Yeah. So, uh, Sylvan Park, which for people who don't know who are maybe in Nashville. It's a a pocket neighborhood, um, not too far from Vanderbilt, but a mature residential uh, area with a kind of a strip of commercial activity um, along two streets, cool little place. Um, A lot of like single story bungalows and and four squares that have been torn down and now you've got tall and skinny two, two for one specials, but a good kind of starter home community. And at the time it, it was just turning over so we bought, um, a commercial property off market. Um, it was an old, um, I would, from New York, I would call it a bodega, like, okay, cool. You know, a corner market type of deal and a pretty decent sized lot. Um, so we bought it. It, And we were going to do a development deal there. So we had partnered with a group who was going to do residential development on one part of it, build up some homes and sell them. And then we were going to develop the commercial component. And as part of doing so, we were relying on a grandfathered clause of usage. So we were kind of going beyond what would typically be allowed from a a code standpoint, uh, from a square footage envelope because there was an existing commercial use structure there. Um, Does that make sense so far?
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So we were, we had, we had pre-leased it, we had everything done and um, long story short, at some point during construction, we, we, we did not maintain enough of the original um, infrastructure from the building. Um, and so we, we, did, we could no longer rely on that grandfathered clause. And it was in the middle of a Metro Council election, which is kind of like the quasi-government group that runs um, zoning and codes for Metro Nashville. And there was a backlash from the, within the community. They didn't want to see the... Some, some components of the community did not want to see that commercial development occur. And so we were, we were in violation of codes. So everything stopped... We were kind of, you know, halfway through construction. Um, and as you can imagine, kind of all hell broke loose in terms of the bank, the tenants, the neighborhood. And it took about a year to square away. Uh, we ended up getting out even on the deal, but it probably took about five years off my life.
0: No kidding. Is that where, uh, is there a barbershop there now?
1: where answer is.
0: Yeah, that's what we I thought.
1: We originally had Deb Paquette. She was going to put Etc. there. Right. And so, which was awesome. She was a great operator. You know, people loved her. Yeah. And it would have been perfect for that neighborhood, right? Like a good little community, locally owned. And she was all about it. Um, But unfortunately, and I won't name names, we got caught up in some local political machinations and, um, you know, just couldn't get out of it. And so we had to sell to um, a group who, was able to inject some more capital into the deal, brought in uh, what is now the the restaurant that's there today. They kept the barbershop that was originally our tenant, and um, I think they're doing fine. But needless to say, I don't do development deals anymore.
0: Yeah, that would be a pretty good reason to stay away from that. That's that, I mean, that's good that you learned that at least though, right? I mean, that's I was talking about that with uh, Bruce Peterson on our commercial conversations over coffee podcast earlier. Like, man, at least you tried it like even if you failed you you learn from it and and now you you're that much better at doing your next deal. I think that's I And think I, and I think
1: yeah and, and I think as a young entrepreneur you you underappreciate risk from a standpoint of you think oh, risk yeah. is well, like risk is the deal might not work. No. The risk is like permanent loss of capital. Risk is uh, having a personal guarantee called. Um yeah. you know, th- those are risks that um, I t- completely underappreciated it at the time, and now when you know we have all kinds of safeguards in place, and and just also it taught me that I personally don't have the appetite, right? I mean, developers that go through multiple bankruptcies and and they 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 cowboy it. I mean they, that's part of the rush, right? Is they love that risk profile, they love the return profile, and they can they can stomach it you know, for me, I just don't have, I just don't have that mentality. It's not in my personality.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it depends on how much and what kind of investor capital you're playing with too, right? Because you, you definitely don't want to burn those bridges and those relationships. Uh, if you're going to go out and just swing for the fences every time. I mean, I've been telling everybody for the last couple of years, like, there's nothing wrong with a single base right now. Just hit a one or a two, you not you don't need to try and swing for a home run because, you know, could you, I, I was just, I just started thinking, I was like, what if, you know, you had been successful and syndicated all of these larger deals that you've done now, and then you tried to just swing for the fences with the development, uh, it probably would have ended up even worse, right? And that's when you get the, those personal guarantee issues and um, I mean, that stuff's not fun. It's not, it's not fun at all.
1: And I think it really hit home conceptually that if you lose $100, you know, you don't need to make a hundred dollars back; you need to make two hundred dollars back. Right. So, conceptually, you can't go broke taking a profit. Is another cliche that I really like a lot.
0: Yeah, because you've got to raise capital to go do the next deal to make that money back, and then you got to pay those guys back, and it's this never-ending cycle. Yeah. Okay. So, so you're you're a big fan of suburban office space, and I want to dive into that because you know when COVID hit. I swear, the only thing that you heard on the news about commercial real estate was office is dead. Everybody's going to work from home. What, you know, we've got Zoom. There's no need for office space anymore. We should just, you know, convert it. This and that. And I kept thinking to myself, like, you know what? I feel like that is just not even remotely true. Um, because to me, I mean, my team started asking me about two months into COVID, like, hey, when can we come back to the office? I was like, that's interesting. Why do you guys want to come back to the office? Well, you know, we, we feel like we get more work done. We enjoy being around the team. You know, I've got my dog and the dog's distracting. The kids are distracting. The, you know, chores are distracting. And uh, so I I just started kind of running with that. I was like, you know what? I don't think that this is going to have as big of an impact on office space as, you know, the media is trying to hype it up to be. In my opinion, we're going to have, I mean, office is going to change. It has to, right? I mean, we're we're in a different environment than we were uh, 12 months ago but I don't think it's going away. And, and you're obviously very bullish on suburban office space. Can you kind of tell us why?
1: Well, I own two and a half million square feet of it, Tyler. So,
0: uh, <laughs> you, you have no. to be.
1: <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not how I want to come across. Uh, I'm, but I do want to say that I'm obviously biased, right? Um, and to your point, I like the way you put it. It will change, right? Uh, I, I think the issue we have is we're 12 months into this experiment, ballpark. Um, we have seen that there are a lot of benefits to having people be flexible in terms of how they, where they work and how they work. And we've also seen that in order to be collaborative, creative, focused, productive. And if you have a team oriented project, as well as trying to onboard a new employee, Those things are really challenging to do over Zoom. So uh, I put it the way that you did, which is office is going to change, but I truly don't believe it's gonna be a secular decline such that it will ever be a part of our professional lives again. I saw, I have 15 employees and I saw in my own company, starting around six months in, maybe a little bit less, people started feeling isolated. They started feeling depressed. Productivity was going down, energy levels were non-existent, and we had just brought on a new person in February, and they were really struggling um, with with corporate culture, understanding their role, communication kept breaking down. And so we started coming back into the office um, at the end of summer, and we have a rotation so that everyone feels safe, and then we certainly had some challenges, but um, the minutes people started coming back into the office, there just was a huge... Different level of vibrancy there, and um, you know, pre-COVID, four percent of the workforce worked remotely, which is different than work from home. It's important to draw that distinction. I certainly think in a post-COVID world, more than four percent of the workforce will work remotely. But you know, do I think that no one's going to go back to the office any longer? I find that very difficult to imagine. Uh, so I envision a world where, you know, most employees are in the in the in the office three to four days a week. And instead of having cubicle farms, the office will be for very focused, concentrated work. And it will also be a place where there'll be multi-purpose rooms and conference areas so that people can be collaborative and creative in a teamwork setting. And so when you kind of think about all those things together, I think it'll kind of be a wash because as opposed to a WeWork, which had roughly 75 square feet per user, And a traditional office is like 350 square feet per employee um that trend is going to move the other way and so i think all those things combined our office usage rate is probably going to be about the same that being said i do think there'll be some winners and losers here based on geographic uh, location i really worry about new york uh, city i worry about san francisco i worry about chicago Um, i think those places are really going to struggle I don't think they're going to go away, but I think for the next five to 10 years, it's going to be a very challenging environment for them.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, you know, we've been getting calls left and right from companies moving from New York, Chicago, LA, San Francisco. I mean, you name it, they're trying to get out of there. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, it's been piling on for years. Everybody's been talking about it. And then COVID was kind of the spark that just really lit the fuel. I mean, Tennessee was the number one state to relocate to in 2020. And there are many reasons for that. I mean, Nashville has an amazing culture. I mean, obviously, Nashville you know, got the the majority of those, those movers. I mean, Nashville has an amazing culture, and Tennessee has no state income tax. So if you own a business and you want to move your employees across the country, why wouldn't you go somewhere like Nashville? We've also got all four seasons. It's a much more just, you know, uh, desirable place to live. So, you know, yeah, I completely agree with that. It'll be interesting to see what happens to New York, honestly.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, um, if you, if, I think COVID po- provided political cover for a lot of these groups to make moves that they haven't been wanting to make for a while, frankly. Um, if you look at wall street relocating to, to Miami, and if you look at the tech universe relocating to Austin, and if you look at kind of corporate relocations across the industry, moving to places like Nashville, These are things that have been in the works for a while, but until the employee base wanted to do it as opposed to employers, it just was a challenge to do it wholesale. But to your point, what will happen is um, jurisdictions like New York and California will have to increase taxes on affluent people, including their businesses, which will mean that those affluent people will leave which means that they're gonna to have to increase taxes on the remaining affluent tax base. Meanwhile, they're gonna to have to decrease services and it's gonna create a little bit of a death spiral yeah. until it reaches a, a nadir. And at some point, the pricing and the entry point will be so attractive that people will go back to New York because it'll be a cheap place to go. And then the cycle will kind of continue. We saw this play out in the 70s and the 80s in the city in New York, um, a little bit after 9-11, um, to a lesser extent. So it's nothing new. I just think it's new that we have so much media attention about it, but, um, clearly quality of life cost of living and, you know, taxes really mean a lot. And I think a part of the story is this maturing millennial generation, which, you know, I'm I'm a part of barely because of 2008, they pushed back their, their traditional family formation phase of their lives three to five years. And the narrative for a long time was that these people were just never going to to have children, get married. They were always going to live in a in a brownstone in Brooklyn and wear skinny pants and eat avocado toast. <laughs> but it was just not the case, right? So, COVID allowed them to really start pulling the trigger on moves that they had contemplated for a while. Um, and so, I think this is just going to be the cycle that we see play out, where this millennial generation, like all generations rebelled against the lifestyle that their parents held and said that they would never live in the suburbs and send their kids to XYZ school. And then lo and behold, you start having children and you want the same lifestyle that you grew up with.
0: Yeah, it'll be fascinating to see, you know, because now millennials are moving more to these secondary and tertiary markets because the type of lifestyle and the companies that they're working for either, you know, have smaller offices in these markets, or you know, they're working remotely. And Chattanooga is one that's that's been high on our radar, we actually just bought a tower out there on Monday, uh, because it's got some of the best internet in the country. And you think about that, like from a an advantage perspective in, in the modern era of office space. I mean, you've got the best internet in the country and you have no state income tax. Why wouldn't everybody from Silicon Valley start moving to Chattanooga? Uh, they already are. I mean, you've got a lot of these developer companies. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it'll be interesting to see how millennials, you know, shifting into new markets will will kind of impact that.
1: Yeah, we put an LOI into the deal in Chattanooga last week. Oh, Very did you bold. really? What part of town? It's none of your business, Tyler. <laughs>
0: No, I'm, uh, all bought, I'm all bought out in Chattanooga, man.
1: <laughs> uh, no, it's out by the airport.
0: Oh, cool. Yeah, the, man, the, the airport's awesome out there. They, they're building that new parking deck. It's, I mean, it's actually getting to be a good-sized airport.
1: Yeah, and, and I think, you know, for a long time, a tertiary market like that was really impacted by lack of, um, of decent air options. But now, and listen, I used to take a hundred to 150 flights a year. Wow. Um, I just don't think that's going to be the way that we conduct business any longer. I think air travel will come back. I think I will be back on the road, but the days of me flying to go have a cup of coffee with somebody in Richmond, I think are kind of over with, with some of the technological advances we make. And I think it's for the better, frankly. So, you know, access to, to air routes is not, As critical as it once was. And so it makes tertiary markets look a lot more attractive.
0: Exactly. Especially if they offer the lifestyle what like what Chattanooga does. I mean, it's kind of a I've been telling everybody it's a mix between Denver and Nashville. It's got that really outdoorsy kind of granola type of feel to it, but it's also a southern, you know, modern city. So it's really interesting to see what's going on out there. So you've got two and a half million square feet of office space. Uh, my portfolio is a little bit smaller. It's 50,000 square feet of office space. But across that portfolio, we collected over 95% of our rents during COVID. Uh, and we had, I think, fewer, it was like two or three tenants move out. And it was because their leases were coming up anyway. Do you have data on your two and a half million square foot portfolio of how much rent you guys collected, how many tenants moved out, and you know how many requested abatements?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So the numbers are um, just about 92 to 93% occupancy. um, And about the same for rent collection. Uh, Every quarter is a little bit different quarterly financials should be out for us next week. So we'll take a look at what the numbers are. Because, you know, people don't pay rent exactly on time, even big corporate entities, everyone buys, you know, a couple weeks. Um, So it's always hard to know until a few weeks out. But yeah, we've been averaging right around that high 90 or low 90s, high 80s percent occupancy rent collection quarter to quarter. And we've been able to, on our, our current portfolio at Excelsior, we've been able to make full distributions except for one asset. Um, now, rent relief requests, gosh, we've probably had three to four. And we did have to cut some deals with some groups that just had direct exposure to COVID related industries. I mean, just... You can't underwrite for that stuff, but for the most part, financial services, professional services—I um, think they're in pretty decent shape. Uh, I think that what we did see, uh, which you see, which you hear echoed from other landlords, is you know, new leasing and lease renewals are just very muted, as you would expect. Right. A lot of people, you know, if you were doing a deal for a five-year renewal in January, you probably did a, a two-year renewal at just carpet and paint because a lot of these folks are just kind of waiting to see how it's gonna play out and, and pressing pause on some big capital expenditures. But um, we, we feel pretty well positioned, frankly, uh, moving forward. Um, and we have seen leasing pick up here recently, but it's still very much geographically dependent state by state. Florida, for instance, there's been a lot of activity. A um, Southeast in general has been very active, but some of our Midwest locations have been pretty slow.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was, that was the one thing that was giving us confidence throughout the entire process was that, you know, from the management perspective, everything was going smoothly. From the leasing perspective, everything slowed down, but it wasn't like the sky was falling. And, you know, we kept collecting rents every month. So it, it, it kept us from freaking out. I mean, everything went on pause. I mean, March, April, May, I don't know that I received a single phone call, which is not normal. Usually I'm on my phone six hours a day, probably <laughs> probably like you. Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was, it was kind of nice to be able to, to take that and step back and work on everything else that I needed to. And then, man, I've, I've never had a busier fall and winter. I mean, we ended up, you know, having our biggest year ever last year, which if you had called me and told me that in in April, I would have told you, you were a liar. Um, it's, it's really interesting to see. And, and
1: one of the things that I think is great about commercial real estate, private equity in general, and when I remind my investors who are maybe new into the space is, There is a reason it's illiquid and we don't have a scoreboard every day. We're not the, we're not the stock market. And frankly, you should be looking at your investments, maybe on a quarterly basis, but probably annually, because giving a snapshot every 30 days is just very challenging to do. And if you look at what happened in the REIT market in March or or April, they were down 40%, some of these names, you know, great operators who have terrific assets in great markets and if you were able to do that with your private portfolio you'd be looking pretty dumb right now um so there's a reason it's constructed like this and there's a reason that it's supposed to be diversified from exposure to other investments you make which is one of the reasons i like it it's 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 slow on purpose right i mean that that's kind of one of the one of the attractive parts of it you just have to sometimes educate people about that
0: yeah, that's one thing that I do love about investing in commercial real estate. I was talking to a friend of mine who invests solely in stocks. And, you know, we had that run back in, was it March? Where it was like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, like record lows in the stock market. And, you know, of course, everybody's freaking out. And I'm sitting over here going, well, I haven't noticed a single change. It's not like somebody's calling me every 30 minutes going, hey, your building's gone down $100,000. Hey, it's t- down two fifty. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful thing about commercial you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. I mean, the building gets valued when I decide to go out and hire an appraiser to value it. Yeah.
1: And even then, it doesn't really matter until there's a sale, right? So, um, yeah. yeah. There, there's, there's some negative components to that, but um, nothing happens quickly in real estate, which is, which is, I think, for the most part, good.
0: Exactly. Well, so you mentioned that you, you own some, some properties down in, in Florida. I've seen you've got some stuff in Virginia. You've got stuff in Kansas. I mean, you're kind of all over the place. Do you, do you only have one asset in Nashville right now?
1: Yeah, out of, out of I don't Brentwood. know what the number is, but, but call it two and a half million square feet. We only own, um, it's a 20,000 square foot building in Brentwood. So we've, we've largely exited the Nashville market.
0: Um, so so why, why is that? And how did you start investing abroad?
1: Yeah. So for us, um, the way I think about the business is we are solving a problem within our investor base and that that problem is threefold, a place where they where investors can you know put capital to work uncorrelated to the stock market, a place where they can achieve something close to a double digit cash or cash yield annualized and uh an investment where they can really benefit from the tax code and so those are the three things that we do and it just happens to be in the product form of commercial real estate now what that means is i'm very cap rate driven it means that i have to be very cautious about my going in basis on a purchase price on a per square foot um and a, and a, and a cap rate kind of uh um, footing because unless I take a ton of leverage or I take a ton of risk, it's very hard to achieve something like a double digit cash on cash yield in a place like Nashville where cap rates are just really low. So in order to solve those problems and achieve the product offering that my investors want, I had to go to other markets. Once Nashville became, um, popular and became expensive, for me to buy stable, you know, cash flow in an occupied asset became impossible um, because a lot of other capital came in here and it became an attractive place and um, it just was very challenging. So we started going to places like Birmingham, Memphis, uh, Louisville, Kentucky, um, and then that kind of led us over time to other. We're in twelve markets now, so we have a. A thesis about secondary markets and that kind of led us to start identifying other msa's that we found attractive and then other sub markets within those msa's that we wanted to eventually expand into so at first it just became um something that we want to educate ourselves about and then as the national market became you know very attractive to a lot of other groups it just was a, a function of you know where can we solve for that yield
0: yeah, I remember two or three years ago, the first multifamily apartment complex that sold for under for a sub-five cap. And everybody was just kind of looking around at each other like, how is this happening in Nashville? Because I don't know that that had ever happened before. It was the first time. It was a new construction building, and it was either downtown or midtown. Um, and now that happens all the time. Like, you're, you're finding yeah. stuff in the low fours, if not high threes sometimes.
1: Yeah, and if you think about it, and I didn't understand when I first got into the business, I understand what, what, what cost of capital meant. I, I didn't really get it, but now I get it because what you see happen is pension plans and big institutional groups that are based in Europe or, um, Asia or, or abroad, they're getting a negative return on their bond portfolios, right? So in a lot of these countries, pension plans and big insurance companies, they need to own X percentage of, of domestic bonds, like in Germany, for instance. And you're getting a negative real return, right? They're going about 100 to 200 bifths negative. So if you think about that return profile, for them to buy something out of three cap, it's actually a pretty a good positive. deal, right? <laughs> yeah. They're, they're going to buy it all cash. Wow. And you know, a 3% yield is better than a negative 2% yield. It's not it's not terribly complicated, but what happens is these big sovereign wealth funds and, and, and international groups start doing this, which means that the domestic private equity groups in America start lowering their return profile expectations. And it, it continues to go down the entire ecosystem. until so you've got guys like me who are saying, Man, I'm getting priced out of my backyard. Like, I can't do this. And so it just pushes cap rate compression across the entire ecosystem. And unfortunately, I don't think you're going to see it change anytime soon, just because there's so much liquidity in the market and real rates are going to stay muted for a long time. Um, So when I think about my cost of capital, it's kind of what is a reasonable rate of return that I should give to my high net worth investors and family office investors to offset, you know, the risk they're taking by doing real estate, to offset the illiquidity they're taking on because it's a 10-year hold and all these other things, and for me to get that 10%, I've got to go to other markets and you know expand my geographic footprint to do it.
0: So when you're looking at these other markets, how are you comparing and contrasting them? Because obviously Kansas is going to have a very different just tax profile than Tennessee does, right? Are you solely looking at cap rates, or how are you studying these different markets and deciding where you're going to go next?
1: Yeah, so we define secondary markets as, and I'm going to use MSA, which is like a metro area, right? Um, yep. For instance, the national Nash- Nashville MSA would include, depending on the broker, <laughs> it might even include it might even include Murfreesboro, which yeah. you and I know is really, really not part of the MSA, but it's it's not just the uh, the downtown area or even the county that it's in. So we look at million plus MSAs population wise who are outside of the you know traditional gateway coastal markets. Um, so exclude LA, Seattle, uh, Chicago, New York, Philly, et cetera. Um, and so that kind of defines the universe for us. And then we look at, okay, which of these markets has year-over-year population growth, wage growth, job growth, call it over the last five years, uh, pre-COVID. And so we say, okay, well, this is, this is attractive. People are moving here. The numbers are good. And then we look at the underlying industries and we like to see Ed's and meds, right? So education, healthcare, government, and increasingly knowledge-based economy or, or STEM economy jobs, because they tend to be counter cyclical to downturns. And so we like to kind of see those underlying economic drivers. And so if it checks all those boxes. We will look at the submarket data. And the submarket is basically a neighborhood within the broader MSA. And once we identify two submarkets that we think would make sense for us, they would be the equivalent of, like, um, for your uh, Brentwood or Maryland Farms. These are usually fairly mature submarkets, not the most exciting places, oftentimes, but they have really good um, economic indicators and they were very resilient during the Great Recession. So typically never experienced more than call it a, a 12 to 14 percent vacancy during the worst of the downturn. Um, and so once we identify those submarkets, we see, OK, well, what are cap rates? What are things trading on a price per square foot basis? And if we can kind of solve for that, you know, close to 10 percent cash at cash yield with current cap rates and we think price per square foot, which is for us we like to see at a discount to replacement cost but more importantly we like to see a discount to replacement rents so that in that submarket if class a rents are at $25 a square foot $27 a square foot that's kind of for one of the nicer buildings in the submarket that's what rents are going to be in order to justify new construction if you need to be at 35 or $40 a square foot we feel really protected that that somebody is not going to come in throw up a couple hundred thousand square feet of spec office development and steal our tenants. We feel very protected as a landlord there. We may not be able to drive rents hugely, but we're looking at stable cash flow, income oriented investments. So that's not as big of a factor for us. And frankly, we like that because when you're in that tight of a submarket, users tend to want to be in that location for a reason. It's usually 15 minutes to um, the decision makers' country club, to where their kids go to school. To where they live, you hear a lot about these 15-minute cities, and that's what a lot of these submarkets tend to be. So they're very sticky; people tend to stay there very long uh, from a from a tenant perspective. So that's kind of how we look at things from a top-down funnel. And then once we identify a submarket we like, we try to over time build up to, you know, a 50 million plus portfolio by taking down. Ten million dollar deals at a time, so incrementally building up that value, uh, so that we can eventually have you know a decent sized portfolio footprint within that submarket.
0: Yeah, that's pretty interesting. You're taking more of a high occupancy approach with you know obviously you're going to get some pretty good tax incentives through depreciation on the building, and then ten years down the road. There's going to be enough meat on the bone for the next guy coming in. He'll still give you a good price. He'll put some money into it and then do the same thing over and over again. It's just like, you know, what the value add multifamily guys do. Yeah. I mean, so, cap rates
1: have stayed pretty consistent across the last 50 years. And most of these markets has been at, right at that seven to 8% cap rate range. So if your deal can still pencil out to be decent cash on cash with a good IRR and using the same cap rate that you're buying at you know, you feel pretty protected there. My investors are not looking for big IRR. They're not looking for big multiples on invested capital. They're looking for alternatives to their fixed income portfolio.
0: Well, let's let's dive into that a bit further. I mean, the, the ideal investor for you, obviously, you know, this episode, we wanted to talk about passive income, building that, that cash flow, uh, you know, everybody wants to make money while they sleep. And real estate's one of the best ways to do that. So what do your what are your investors typically looking for? I mean, give us give us kind of the pitch on what you guys do and, and the investment returns.
1: Yeah, and um, I talk about this a lot. I think a big problem from entrepreneurs and sponsors in the space is they pitch by talking about how great they are. <laughs> and they, they, they give what I call the resume pitch, which is, yep. you know, I went to Princeton and then went to Harvard Business School. Then I worked for NASA. Then I worked for Carlisle and like, I'm awesome. And I think the reality is nobody really cares. It's all about what you can do for them and what problem you can solve for them. And for the most part, my investors are looking for those three things that I ticked off. Um, A place where they can put capital to work that's uncorrelated to the stock market. Somewhere where they can achieve a good, healthy, cash on cash, passive income yield annualized that's distributed monthly and where they can take advantage of you alluded to it cost segregation analysis accelerated depreciation all these tax benefits that come from direct real estate ownership so that hopefully on the k-1 they can show a minimal gain or even a loss sometimes while getting that double digit coupon to offset gains elsewhere in their portfolio because we only work with taxable investors and that's a really big thing is i personally believe that if you're going to be doing passive investing you need to be focused on managers that are going to be able to deliver After tax net of fees returns, because gross IRRs are almost meaningless, in my opinion, um, when you're talking about being an individual or a family. So, those are things that we do for our investors. Obviously, there's a lot more to it, but we try to keep it very simple. And, um, you know, to your point, commercial real estate is one of the only places where you can still achieve that kind of yield these days. Everything has really been bid up so aggressively that, um, you know, finding that yield is just very difficult.
0: Yeah, it really is. Uh, That's funny to hear your take on IRRs. Uh, You know, when you first get started in commercial real estate, you don't really want to look at IRRs. Uh, At least that's how I felt. It's like, I don't want to bother with that. I want to look at cash on cash. And then you get a little more sophisticated and and it's all about the IRR. And then you get even more sophisticated and you go, oh my gosh, the IRR is complete garbage because (laughs) it doesn't take a whole lot to actually completely manipulate that. Yeah, Um,
1: and we have a, not a problem, but like investors will look at our deals and you know, we're holding for 10 years. Typically that's, at least that's what we kind of underwrite to because we want to be conservative and, and be mindful of people's illiquidity because it's a long-term hold. I get it.
0: Yeah. And you don't want to but sell he, in a down market cause you have to, you know, right?
1: Exactly. So, and I think Cove is a good lesson, right? I mean, if, don't sell if you don't have to. Yeah. Um, but if you, if you just do the math and you think, okay, well, I'm going to hold this for 10 years and I'm not going to pencil in cap rate compression, I'm just going to use the same cap rate, maybe some modest appreciation over a 10 year period, your IRR is not going to be impressive. If it is, you're, something's wrong with your underwriting. I mean,
0: yeah, I, it's impossible. we're looking at
1: mid to low teens IRRs, um, but my pushback to the investors or, or to other folks is, I mean, you can't take a gross IRR to your mortgage payment. You can't take a gross IRR to pay for your beach house or to pay for Johnny's tuition I mean, we're trying to solve for cash flow here. Um, so if you want to go chase after IRR, go work with a developer or do some deep value add, I mean, that that's where you're going to hit those those big hitters. But for the most part, my folks don't want the capital back, they want the coupon. Yep. So unless I'm going to hit a big home run, or it's gonna be a very meaningful disposition. Um, you know, I think they'd rather have the dividend.
0: Yeah, that's what we try and, and hammer into you know our investors' minds is no look at the look at the annualized cash on cash, and look at the equity multiple. I mean that is you know that's really where it's telling because I mean I can get you a 50 IRR and get you a 1.1 equity like it it doesn't it doesn't look good right, um, and it's not good. Um, so if if let's let's say I'm I'm a you know wannabe investor. I don't want to I don't want to deal with running a de- you know a, a deal right I'm a, I'm a doctor I make a lot of money and I just want to place it you know what what should I do when I'm interviewing a sponsor to figure out if that's the right person to be putting my money with?
1: yeah this is a great question it's a really challenging answer because it's so dependent on your own circumstances right So what I typically tell people is um, take your liquid net worth, Kind of the cash plus your 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 stock portfolio and your bonds and take a percentage of it i don't feel comfortable telling you a percentage it is but if you think about it i'm sure you feel comfortable with a certain number let's call it 10 percent just for the math purposes and take that 10 percent and allocate it across five deals ten deals um and don't try to pick the winners have a fixed allocation, assume you're going to do X amount of deals over that calendar year and put the money to work. And very quickly, like within 12 to 24 months, you'll have a pretty good sense of who the right sponsors are and who the wrong ones are and who what asset class or, or product type that you want to work with is versus not. Um, that's kind of the best advice I have. And and I think it makes sense to start with a product type that, you know, which for a lot of people is going to be single family apartment buildings and office buildings, because you, you likely have had firsthand experience in those places. Right. And so I always urge people that they should invest in what they know and invest in what they understand. Just like buying a stock. If you can't explain to me in a sentence how that company makes money, you probably shouldn't invest in that stock. If you can't explain to me in a sentence, how my deals make money for you, then then you shouldn't do my deals, it shouldn't be overly complicated real estate is a fairly simple asset class and product type. Um, So that's where I would start start in your backyard. And one of the cool things about what's happening with COVID and and shows like yours, is if you have time, you can learn more than you probably ever wanted to know (laughs) about,
0: you
1: know, commercial real estate, or, or, you know, private equity, real estate investing. I mean, look at my website. You go to the resources tab. I will crush you with with information. Um, and LinkedIn, YouTube, podcasts. If you just take 30 days, you can become an expert, maybe to a dangerous extent. But you can at least be like dangerously knowledgeable about a lot of different product types. And you'll get a sense of like what's for you and what's not, right? I mean, to your point earlier, if you're chasing IRR, I'm not going to be a fit for you. If you're looking for really juicy yields, multifamily is not going to work for you right now. It's just not. If you're looking for an ultra safe place to to put capital, but you don't care about the returns. Yeah. Go to class a distribution, um, or warehouse. I mean, it's going to be great for you. So I kind of tell people have a number, have an allocation, stick with it, spread it around. So that you get a feel and a vibe for different product types and different managers and sponsors. And one thing that I really tell people, who are thinking about investing for the first time is um, you have to understand you're taking a risk on the product type, right? Like the underlying real estate deals, they are inherently risky. If I'm going to achieve the results that I think I can, there's going to be some risk premium associated with it. And you have to understand that risk. You have to feel comfortable with it. The other risk that nobody talks about and investors never ask about is that you're also investing in a small business because this sponsor has to have the right infrastructure for reporting, tax, audit, accounting, legal, HR, marketing, all these things that don't really have anything directly to do with the real estate deals themselves. But unless you have that infrastructure in place, the real estate deals are not going to be as effective as they should be or they're they're just not going to be uh, able to execute on. So I would ask a lot about kind of what 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 do you have in place to allow you to run your actual real estate business itself because a lot of sponsors are running around out there doing it as a part-time gig or they're outsourcing everything and it's just very hard to manage in my experience that was a big mistake i made early in my career
0: that's a great point I mean, it, even down to you know what's your insurance right because if you go out and you get hit by a bus tomorrow how am I protected with the money that I've given you? How, like, how is that all going to be handled? I think, I think you're right. I mean, people don't ask those questions, and they absolutely should be. They're, they're grilling on the deal, and they don't necessarily dive into the sponsor and, and the backbone that they have set up. And I, I totally agree with you on the, the spread it around. I mean, if I'm dealing with a first-time investor, you know, typically our investors are in that fifty dollars to $250,000 range. And if they come to me and they say, hey, I've got $100,000 to invest. I want to give it all to you. I'm like, no, nope. I'll take twenty-five or fifty. I'll take 25 or 50. I don't want all of your money. Go spend it with someone else, too, because, you know, I don't want you to be calling me going, hey, how's my money all the time? It's just, you know, it creates kind of a stressful environment and they're always worried about it. And you're the one person that has all their cash. And I'm sure, have you ever had to deal with that before? Yeah, and
1: and, and I mean, it's hard um, as a manager to say no, right? I mean, do yeah. you, you want the capital. oh Yeah. But for us, it's really important. We only work with accredited investors. And that's a really important question that investors should ask is, you know, is your is your LP base accredited, unaccredited, because you're going to get a different experience. And you're going to have a different style of management, depending on that answer. And yeah, I mean, on a percentage basis, if somebody invests $25,000 with me, and that represents 50% of their net worth, <laughs> that person is going to be blowing up my cell phone all the time. Whereas a big family office that invests a million dollars with me and that represents 1% of their net worth, I won't be able to know where to send the checks. They don't care. Yep. It's not that they don't care, it's just on a, on a percentage basis, it's a de minimis investment for them. And right. I can't get a hold of them to figure out whether this is, I need to go to your Hampton's house and not your New York City house. Um, so yeah, I mean, I always kind of, for a new investor, we have typically a set minimum and the way that we have that conversation is if you don't feel comfortable with this minimum, you're not the right investor for me. And this is not the right investment for you. And, and so this is not me saying you're not rich enough. We're just not a fit today. Um, and I, I kind of learned that the hard way because as a, as a young manager, as a young sponsor. You're so desperate to raise, it can be really hard to say no. But I promise you that if you're just very clear and transparent, um, it'll happen for you. But um, you, you can't be overeager because having having the wrong LP relationship take up a lot of your time and energy. Yeah,
0: it really can. I've I've been fortunate to have the guys that just place capital and they go on vacation and don't even ask about it. But I mean, I've I've had friends that have taken on the wrong investors and it can, it can turn into a nightmare because as the GP, you know, your time is best spent managing the deal and making sure that it's operating as efficiently as possible. So you can give everybody as much money as possible, not answering every phone call from investor, from an investor who's just trying to, you know, they're worried about everything. So, so you do strictly 506C offerings then? Have you ever yeah. done a five hundred six B? Was there a conscious like we're never okay? So you've you've just never done a five hundred six B?
1: Yeah, you know we have folks self-certify that they're accredited, and we don't have um, the infrastructure nor the desire to to confirm people's accreditation status. We just haven't needed to, and and honestly, you know if if, if an individual is making less than two hundred thousand dollars a year, or they have less than a million dollars of assets. Um, given our deal structure and who we typically work with, they're probably not a great fit for us. Um, and I know that sounds like terrible to say, it was just the reality. Um, these are usually folks that have, you know, maxed out their 401k, maxed out their IRA, They're heavy income earners, their top tax bracket. They have plenty of exposure to the market and fixed income. And they're really looking to be a little bit more aggressive with their allocation, um, and looking for. Direct real estate exposure, not through a REIT and not through some kind of Blackstone fund of funds, and they want to play a little bit more offense. That's where we can really play a part for people, but um, we should not be your, you know, your primary income driver. That's that's not what we do. Yeah,
0: and that's a responsible way of managing other people's money, right? I mean, even if you're not their advisor, you're giving them good advice, and and I think that that's how you become you know, a good, a good deal sponsor. So, you know, what, what kind of, uh, what kind of cash on cash returns are you seeing annually right now, considering how compressed the market has gotten? I mean, if, if you're, if I was coming to look at a new deal and I wanted to place, you know, $200,000, I mean, what, what could I expect?
1: Um, yeah, so we're uh, across our portfolio today for within the Excelsior portfolio, we're averaging right around 11% cash on cash gross. So you're netting, you know, call it nine to 10, depending on the, every deal is a little bit different depending on the the asset management fee. Um, So it's a pretty healthy coupon. Now it's not, it's not a bond. So every quarter is going to be a little bit different. Every month is going to be a little bit different, but we have been able to achieve pretty healthy um, dividends. Um, And we do take advantage of all the tax benefits that come there. So, you know, we try to push through as much loss as we can to people's K1s. Uh, and I, and also want to comment on something we talked about before we move on. Yeah. Um, another question that I think people should ask and, and managers need to understand is, um, given everything available today, and I, I'm going to sound old cause I've been doing this 10 years, but given, given prop tech or commercial real estate technology services and, and platforms that you can use, not having institutional reporting is inexcusable in my opinion. Um, And I promise you, if you put the money and resources to work in that space, it will save you so much time and energy in terms of a communication standpoint, instead of having to field a hundred phone calls a day, if you just have a really great portal and you take your, if you give your asset managers, uh, the directive that best in class, transparent reporting is essential to our business. And it doesn't always have to be good news. It just It is what it is. You tell people everything that's there. You give them access to everything. It will save you a lot of heartburn. Um, and that's a question that LPs really I think need to start asking more of is, you know, what does your portal look like? What are my expectations from a reporting standpoint? And again, it can be hard because as a sponsor, you just want to get the check and then move on. But unless you're very transparent and clear with what that expectation is going to be from the investor standpoint, you know, it, it's going to be a challenging relationship with that with that LP in my experience. So we tell people on the front end, you can expect monthly p financials. You can expect quarterly asset level and market level commentary. You can expect a twenty four seven three sixty five portal where you can see historical distributions, historical reporting, you can upload K ones in a, in a secure fashion, etc. cetera. And if you contact us, somebody on the team is going to respond to you within 24 hours. We may not have the answer to your question, but you will get an email or a call within 24 hours and you cannot call me on the weekends. That's that's kind of a a pretty hard line rule that I have because I have 550 investors. And if if I let everybody call me on a Saturday afternoon, next thing I know, I'm working seven days a week and I'm burned out and I'm just not an effective manager and, you know, and I'm divorced. So. That's just not something that I want to right. do. And I don't think people begrudge you that. But unless you tell them on the front end, they don't know what the guardrails are, right?
0: Yeah, you just have to set those expectations. And I think that's totally healthy. I mean, because at the end of the day, you know, you don't want them calling you on a Saturday so that you can spend Saturday and Sunday with the family, get recharged and get back to work on Monday. I mean, I think, I think that makes all the sense in the world. We just recently started using an an investor portal called Invest Next, and Mm -hmm. I have been blown away by the capability that that brings a team. I mean, it makes you look so much better or so much more organized maybe than you really are, right? Like I go in there and we could, you know, at the click of a button, send out all the financials. And send out all you know email updates and all that kind of stuff. And you know, investors pull their K1s through there so we don't have to send out fifty emails. I mean it's ACHs go
1: directly through. Like it's incredible what it can happen. And also and this happens with some investors. It's like they ask you a bunch of questions and then you go look on their their portal and you're like, dude, you haven't logged into your portal in six months. Like, I understand you've got questions, but this is your first step. And and then I'm always happy to set up a phone call with our controller, but you've got to understand it's all right there. And I think investors are getting a lot better with that. Obviously, some older folks have some challenges, but the technology is just so user-friendly now that, I mean, even three to five years ago, unimaginable to me how much easier it would be from that standpoint.
0: Right, it's funny, the younger guys that you would think, you know they don't have quite as much money as the older guys, they're asking far fewer questions because they will log into that portal, they'll see everything and they're done the older guys are the ones that they, you know, can't figure out their email and uh, (laughs) they're calling you all the time.
1: Yeah. But the support is really good. So it's good.
0: Yeah, that's great. So we've danced a little bit around the tax advantages. Uh, We've talked about depreciation and that kind of stuff, but you know, obviously your investors are not active real estate professionals, but what kind of tax advantages do they receive by investing with you as the LP?
1: Yeah. So I'll caveat by saying this. I I cannot give you tax advice. I'm not a CPA. Entertainment Um, purposes
0: only. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. Um, One of the big mistakes I made early in my career was outsourcing, bookkeeping, and accounting functionality. And then an even bigger mistake was bringing somebody in-house that wasn't really, really, really top-notch. And today I've got a controller who's a CPA with a public accounting tax background, and he's terrific. Um, he does not give you tax advice, but he works directly with your tax advisor or our third-party tax advisor to make sure that we are hand in glove with everything else that is happening. And he ensures that K ones get out in a very timely fashion, which is a very big deal for us. Um, what I tell people is you hear a lot of stock guys or, or portfolio managers talk about don't fight the Fed, which I think is probably accurate. I would say even more important is don't fight the IRS code. And the IRS code is, and I got a a C in basic federal income tax in law school, so bear with me. But (laughs) the tax code is a set of incentives and disincentives to either encourage or discourage consumer behavior. When you look at the tax code, it is slapping you in the face, encouraging you to own your own home and to invest in commercial real estate because through cost segregation analysis and accelerated depreciation under the new Trump tax code that was launched a couple years ago, the the incentives are incredible what direct ownership of real estate can get to you. And we take full advantage of everything that's allowable under the code to provide that. And we can't guarantee it, but oftentimes we're able to show a loss under K-1 for the first one or two years of ownership, which when coupled with a double digit yield, it's just a really powerful thing for a high income tax, taxable investor.
0: So I first got exposed to cost segregation studies, gosh, three or four years ago. And game we game absolute game changer. So I had a client build a near nearly 150 unit little boutique apartment complex. And they showed, gosh, I want to say it was a, they had about a million dollars in revenue their first year. And they showed a half million dollar loss because of cost segregation. And when they showed me that, I was just floored. I mean, because, you know, that developer was kind of opening up the doors and showing me how they were doing everything because I was curious. And and that was remarkable to me. I mean, showing a half million dollar loss on a million dollars in income. You think about that swing and the carryover. And that was just one year. They get another year of depreciation and another year.
1: Yeah, it's, you know... Um I don't do politics and I don't want to make light of the political situation in our country today, but when, when tax, when Trump's tax returns were leaked, people were floored except for real estate professionals.
0: Yeah. everyone was like, "Yep, yeah, that looks about right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Especially for a developer that has, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of deals. Yeah, he shouldn't be paying taxes at all. He's just doing what the tax code allows him. I, I was astounded by the the vitriol that, that occurred from that because this is pretty basic stuff for most tax folks. And and I, I like your question. We actually have quite a few investors who do qualify as um, tax as real estate professionals, and that's a whole another level of just incredible benefits that come from it. So.
0: Right. So are they, are they actually doing their own real estate deals and they are also investing with you on stuff? Is that how they're taking advantage of that?
1: Yeah. Oftentimes they own a bunch of like single families or, or quadplexes or some apartment buildings, or they happen to be, um, um, uh, a real estate attorney or CPA. Um,
0: and you know, they, they qualify. So, yeah. 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 That makes sense. That's, uh, I mean, it makes all the sense in the world. If you're doing real estate already, and you come across another successful real estate professional, I mean, every it's funny, it's kind of incestuous, everybody just starts throwing money into each other's deals. Um, Yeah, we've got a number of real estate guys that will invest in ours, and we invest in theirs. And uh, it just makes sense, right? Because you can kind of spread it out. Like, like we were talking about earlier, you're you're not stuck into one project that you're working on. which I think is smart. Mm -hmm. So you've been working on office space quite a bit. Do you see yourself branching out further into, you know, we've talked about industrial, we've talked about multifamily. I mean, obviously, the cap rates now, you know, I mean, they're just not even worth looking at for what we're doing. But do you see yourself getting into those those lanes at some point?
1: Yeah, we actually just um, raised on a deal in Detroit, the suburban Detroit, single story flex product. So kind of office or medical use in the front and then industrial distribution in the back, smaller deal. Um, But we got it at a really attractive cap rate, kind of a distressed seller scenario. And with debt as cheap as it is, uh, we bought it at um, roughly an eight cap, which equated to a 14% cash on cash year one return. And it was north of a 12 on average over a 10-year period. So that's amazing. We yeah, it was incredible. We were, we were two X oversubscribed, um, the appetite level was through the roof. It was, I've never seen, after doing this for 10 years, I've raised close to a hundred million dollars. Probably it was a three and a half million dollar raise and I've never seen anything like it. Um, people fighting over it. Yeah. I mean, there's some hurt feelings, um, which is always a challenge and you don't want to kind of make light of of that because you want all your investors to, to feel like they got a fair shot, but, um, we just had, I don't know if it was because of GameStop or just because the yield was so high or people thought, I want to double or triple down on this one because I don't know if there's going to be any more this year. But we had some folks coming pretty heavy on the deal, and um, which, is, which is great. So we're going to continue to look at that style of, of products. We still believe in office, but right now, underwriting new acquisitions in terms of leasing activity is just a real challenge. And we have to be conscious of that. And, and one of the reasons I like being a fundless sponsor is I'm not beholden to a PPM that says, I must be in this market, I must be in this product type. Again, I'm just solving for that yield component. And so if I find other commercial product types that that can meet those requirements, and I like the underlying story and the market,
0: you know, we can go there, which is great. So that that brings up a good question. Do, are you raising capital? I mean, that one was obviously specifically for that deal. Are you? Have you always raised capital deal by deal, or have you considered doing funds? And and if you have, why or or not? Why or why not?
1: Yeah, we have raised three funds in the past. So when we first got into the business. We raised kind of these traditional blind pool co mingled fund vehicles, and they were small. I mean, um, which I, in real estate everything's a relative. But um, they they weren't terribly big. And what happened was um, we had some success because we bought it in Nashville. We got lucky. We returned a bunch of capital. Um, And we we raised, you know, consecutive funds. And what we started doing was offering fund investors direct co-investment rights on a deal-by-deal basis um, as an incentive to invest in the fund. And the appetite was crazy. They started, you know, maxing out their allocations. They would bring in friends and family. And I realized that this is really the product type that they wanted. They didn't really want to do a fund. It just was what I had to offer them. And I talked about this on some other podcasts, but, um, I think a big mistake that people make when they pitch is they have this beautiful shiny object and they think, Oh, this deal is terrific. And, and I'm going to go to market and it's going to be wonderful. And then they take the deal that they have in hand that they spend all this time on and they, they cram it down people's throats, right? They go to their investors and they say, This is the deal, you should do this. <laughs> and I used to do the same thing.
0: Yeah. And
1: you can and you can kind of grind out that way. But what I started doing was actually listening to what my investors wanted and being empathetic with their needs and their problems. And, and, you know, we have, there's a reason that we have two ears and one mouth. We should listen more than we talk, which I violate that rule a lot. But, um, what they wanted was just direct co-investment opportunities. And so once we realized that that was kind of the world we were living in and what our logical investor base wanted, we pivoted to being uh, deal by deal, probably five years ago. And, um, we have no intention of raising another fund.
0: Yeah, funds can, uh, they, they seem pretty complicated. And, and if you don't word them right, from what I understand, uh, it can really restrict you, um, or at least put you in a place where you have a conflict of interest, potentially. Um, you know, I mean, we were, we were talking about possibly raising an East Nashville fund, you know, just doing a smaller fund so that I could go out and, you know, buy up a bunch of properties on this side of town and then you know it was kind of it was brought up like okay well if you do that and you go buy another property that you don't offer to the fund for or you don't do through the fund then there's a potential conflict of interest and i live in east nashville my office is in east nashville and so if a small opportunity pops up over here i'm going to buy it did you ever kind of did you ever run across that like conflict of interest
1: yeah i mean i think being a fiduciary is something that a lot of sponsors don't understand fully what it means and when you are a fund manager, it's kind of like, you know, the fund business is its own business, and then you've got the investment side of it. And fund PPMs are expensive to, to draft. I think raising a fund product type as a younger emerging manager is a challenge. Um, and the fund administration is also time consuming. And to your point, where, where I've seen it difficult, and, and I, I made a comment about this earlier in a world that changes pretty dramatically every couple of months now being beholden to a PPM, which is the legal document that basically is the, the marketing portion of your fund, being beholden to a to a PPM that says that you must allocate towards these types of commercial real estate in these type of markets. And these are the limitations that you have from a debt perspective, and occupancy, etc you're really locking yourself in. Now, the reality is investors are not gonna begrudge you making managerial decisions there, but I don't think people actually appreciate the fact that you know, until that fund is spent and you're probably 75% allocated out of that fund, you really can't do anything else. And for institutional investors that wanna write 25, $50 million checks and just don't have the capacity to look at one-off deals, funds are a great vehicle for them. Um, but for, for individuals and families, I think, I think smaller phones are just problematic, um, structurally.
0: Yeah. My, my point of view on that was, you know, I don't ever want to find myself in a position where I could be asked a question that I couldn't really answer in a good way. And I feel like it, it, cause you, there's some gray areas sometimes with that. And, so I, I agree with you there, I, I, I enjoy raising on a deal by deal basis a little bit more, it makes you know, the the process of acquiring a site a little bit more stressful. Uh, but at least you know, you're always kind of in your lane, um, and, and legally protected. Right? Yeah, I,
1: and, and I think it's fair. I mean, we all want, we all want discretionary capital, right? We all want to be able to make a phone call and a million dollars shows up in the bank account. Right? And I I think it's not true that you can raise on a good deal because it's a good deal. That's just, that's just not true. But if you do enough work educating your investor base about what you're trying to achieve and what you're hoping to do, and if the deal stands on its own merits, I think you probably will raise the equity needed, right? Um, And one of the reasons I like being a fundless sponsor, in addition to everything else that I've said is, there have been times where our investors, who some of them are very savvy, have asked us a bunch of really hard questions and questioned our assumptions and brought up some things to us during the diligence phase where we're raising that have caused us to, to pull the plug on a deal. And I think that's a very healthy relationship to have. That's great. Where, you know, part of your diligence process is not only like the bricks and sticks diligence and legal diligence on the underlying asset, but Raising capital is is, is a challenge and it's supposed to be hard and you're supposed to be able to answer hard questions and you know now we know what to expect and and it's just become part of our diligence process because we know that some of our high net worth individuals and families who have been doing this for a long time are going to really dig in Um, and I think it just makes us a better manager.
0: Yeah, it's it's just like having a, a lender involved in the deal, right? I mean, of course they're gonna they're gonna come in and they're gonna require you do a phase one and get a survey and do, you know, geotechnical if you're doing a, a development and you know there's there's a lot that they'll require you to do, and it may come off as annoying that you have to go do this stuff, but at the end of the day, it's in your best interests. You should be doing all that kind of stuff anyway, and they're they're gonna bring up points that maybe you just haven't thought about. I think that makes, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. It's it's good to have that conversation with your investors because they're your partners, just like a is you your know, partner.
1: People, people oftentimes will complain, you know, why it takes so long to close a deal. And, you know, after doing this for 10 years, I don't know how transactional attorneys do it all day, every day. It's oh just, my gosh, like, yeah. But, you know, in my experience, um, there's a reason it takes a while. There's a reason it's a process. There's a reason that all these groups get involved and everyone's got to sign off and everything because to your point, the last thing you want to do is, is, is close the deal quickly and realize, well, shit, there used to be a gas station underneath here. That's a problem. Oh, man. Um, but, you know, these things have a natural cycle to them. And um, one thing that I have learned begrudgingly is patience.
0: Yeah, that's that is definitely something that you will learn in commercial real estate. I mean, th- nothing happens quickly. Nothing. I mean, I, I remember when I first got started in 2013. Uh, I got started in October, and nothing happened in December and January. I mean, nothing. And then I started to realize, okay, well, it takes like, four to six months for for anything to really start happening. And it takes two, three weeks for brokers to really start getting you information on projects. and. You know, you, you look at the residential world, it's like, I mean, your head's spinning, they're moving so fast. Mm. Um, it's just a, it's a, it's a completely different beast, but you're right. It's, you gotta be patient. What's uh, what's one piece of advice that you would give to a, an up and coming deal sponsor knowing what you know now? Mm. Um, take, so <laughs>
1: there's a lot of advice cuz i made a lot of that <laughs> yeah. made a lot of mistakes. Um, well, we we well, can a, give a multiple
0: big, pieces of advice. <laughs>
1: okay. We got yeah, a big one a big one would be um, understand that you are the chief sales officer and if you do not feel comfortable asking people for money and being a capital raiser this is not the business for you. Um i would before you kind of jump into this list 100 people that you know who you think might be accredited investors and have ask them for a cup of coffee, you know, not with COVID maybe, but um, you know, Jimmy Webb, who is just a legend, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, but yeah. early early in my career gave me a piece of advice of, you know, take people to breakfast because it's the cheapest meal of the day, <laughs> um, which I He's thought was awesome. a great guy.
0: He went to my high school.
1: Yeah, there's a big MBA guy. Um, but, you know, a cup of coffee costs three bucks, six, if you're going somewhere fancy, like in East Nashville, where you live. Um, <laughs> but take these people to a cup of coffee, ask them, you know, what do you, what do you, wh- what would you want out of a commercial real estate investment? If you were going to make a private investment, paint me a picture of that perfect setup. Like, how would it feel? What would the user experience be like? What would the return profile be? And do that with a hundred people. And understand whether or not you think you can raise around the asset that you want to raise, uh, because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to spend time putting together a deal unless you have the ability to raise capital around it. It's a capital intensive business. And for a long time, and I still see this all the time Is I thought, man, if I can just like find the right family office or if I can plug in with the right group, it'll be turnkey. These people would just like the, the floodgates will open. But it doesn't work that way and it's supposed to be hard. Raising capital is not easy and it's not meant to be. And to do this business right, you've got to appreciate that. So groups that I know that say, oh, well, we've got great deal flow and we're going to hire a development person. I think it's going to be very challenging. You can't outsource that functionality. So that would be one piece of advice. The second would be take money out of your own pocket and build the correct infrastructure that you can so you can scale efficiently um it's going to be painful and you're not going to like to do it but having a controller having a bookkeeper having the reporting in place the expectations from investors now are that you do a lot on the marketing side as well like my investors they want deal flow for me but they also want me to do interesting webinars and to make introductions for them and make referrals and, um, give them market commentary. And, and that that takes time and, and resources. Um, so you need to step your game up because the crowdfunding sites are getting better and better. Um, maybe not from a deal flow perspective for but from a user experience perspective, they're getting very savvy. And so you've got to compete against that. Um, and then, you know, to the extent that you can, um, try to avoid taking personal guarantees.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Those personal guarantees will, uh, they'll catch up to you at some point. Um, it's, they're almost, it's almost a necessary evil when you first start out just cause you don't have the track record. You don't have, you know, you don't have the assurances or the relationships, but, um, yeah, as soon as you can get out of those, get away from them. Uh, well, speaking of market updates, I mean, you're, you're very active on LinkedIn. I see you posting and sharing updates and information and insights, uh, all of the time. You've got a podcast called Colloquium. You know, if, if somebody's looking to, to reach out to you, they want to learn more about what you're doing. They want to get on your investor list. They want to listen to your podcast, whatever. How do, how do they find you? What's the best way to find you?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that question. Uh, to your, to your point, LinkedIn is probably the best way to, to, get connected with me i'm very active on it um i've become a huge proponent of it during covid i found a a, lot of investor relationships through the platform and it's an incredibly powerful place so look me up brian adams excelsior capital shoot me a note uh, shoot me a connection request and um, i'm happy to find some time to talk i think all i do now is talk on the phone since i don't travel anymore (laughs) so i've got some time in my hands and um you know excelsiorgp.com is the website you can go check us out. Um, if you wanna sign up for our newsletters or if you wanna start um, the investor kind of process, um, we'd be happy to, to talk more about the opportunities that we have in front of us. And um, yeah, those are probably the two best ways.
0: Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for coming on, man. This was a great conversation. And uh, guys, we'll see you next time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having
0: me.